0: Welcome to the 100th episode of Hardly Working. Thank you for being a part of this journey with us. Whether you've listened to one half of an episode or all 100, Gold Star, we hope that when you've listened to and learned with us, you've gained a perspective on this thing we call work and your place in it. As a celebration of all we've learned together, we wanted to revisit some of our best moments. As always, we hope this listening leads you to a job that fits so well it feels like you're hardly working. First, we'll hear an episode released in July 2021 on the future of work with Jamie Marisotis. Marisotis is the president and CEO of the Lumina Foundation, an organization that works to prepare people for success in the global economy. Here, Marisotis discusses findings from his book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machine, including changes that technology will bring to the workforce and the importance of building skills that complement technical expertise. These skills, as you'll hear, are largely human and non-cognitive, they include things like compassion, empathy, moral sense, and communication, and they make us adaptable in an uncertain and constantly
1: evolving future. The question that people keep asking me is, why are we as a nation so focused on education? In other words, fundamentally, what is it, what is it really for? And you know, as I explored that question, I realized the answer is that we, we have to prepare people for the work that only humans can do. And we have to do that because we know that work is changing in unprecedented ways. Technology and AI is, you know, taking over more and more of the tasks people used to do. And, you know, I became very interested in this idea of how we can actually understand what human work is, which is an important part of the book, and then how we will prepare people for human work. And what frustrated me, frankly, in in writing the book, I started working on the book in 2018, and I finished it in the middle of of 2020, is that in that time period, everybody was sort of focused on, you know, what I've been calling the robot zombie apocalypse, you know, the the robots are going to come and eat everybody's job, and nobody's gonna have anything to do. And, you know, my view is that technology has always been a job creator and a job destroyer. But in the end, technology always creates more jobs than it destroys. So what I'm more interested in is not that process of creative destruction and renewal, but rather what is the work that we will be doing and how are we going to prepare people for it? You know, to me, we know what machines are good at. They're good at repetition, at speed, at pattern, at, at reduction to an algorithm, but machines don't understand subtlety and human nuance and how people react to each other. In fact, you know, the more that people interact with each other, the less likely the, the work can be done by machines. So one of the people I talk to in the book is a roboticist, famous roboticist, and Ken Goldberg runs the robotics program at Berkeley. And he refers to this idea of human-machine complementarity, this idea that what humans are good at is complementary to what machines can do, and vice versa. And so to me, you know, that's I think the key here, which is we have to take advantage of the capabilities of machines, but also understand their limitations and refocus ourselves on those human skills and knowledge and capabilities that define us as, as human workers. So you know, we'll have to nurture those foundational human abilities, our ability to be compassionate, to be empathetic, to be ethical, and, you know, to to build our human capabilities for critical analysis and communication and collaboration in ways that are different than what we've done before. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think the conclusion I came to is that we're different than machines in, in a lot of ways, but, you know, probably the most important is that for us as humans, work matters, And we are working not only because we want to earn a paycheck, everyone wants to do that, but also because it offers us social mobility and satisfaction and dignity, and at the end of the day, meaning and purpose. And so the book is really about how we should be thinking about work in in the future going forward, the work that only humans can do, and how we're going to prepare people for that through our formal and informal learning systems.
0: Next, we'll hear from our AEI colleague, Nicholas Eberstadt, from an episode that aired in October 2022. Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at AEI, where he researches demographics and economic development. Eberstadt discusses the post-COVID edition of his book, Men Without Work. He explains the problem of male worklessness in our economy has worsened since the first edition of his book, published in 2016, and has contributed to a post-COVID shortage of some 11 million jobs.
2: Around 2014, it occurred to me that all of this happy talk I was hearing about how the U.S. was at or near full employment wasn't really squaring with the other stuff that I was seeing about how half of uh, Americans thought we were still in a recession. and. So I just started kind of like pulling on a thread of this stuff. And I said, Oh, holy cow. The unemployment rate is really low, but there's this huge stratum of prime age men who've basically dropped out of the workforce. And the reason the unemployment rate looks so peachy, keen, good. Is because there are two or three guys who are neither working nor looking for work for every guy who's unemployed and looking for a job. And I started to try to look a little bit further at this, and the more I looked, kind of the more troubling it uh, seemed. And I called uh, I, I called this book "Men Without Work: America's Invisible Crisis" because it seemed to be really invisible at this time there was very little attention that was being paid to this very big economic and social and maybe even political problem so we've had a lot of things happen over the last six years since this came out including a you know a catastrophe the uh the COVID pandemic in which we lost more than a million americans and it seemed that you know, taking stock of how things uh, how things are now, what's changed, what hasn't, was kind of apropos. And in looking at the situation now, we found that things had unfortunately not gotten better. The situation of, of what I call the men without work problem has actually kind of uh, worsened, but the problem has also changed in major dimensions because almost unimaginably, we've ended up with this uh, post-pandemic peacetime labor shortage with millions and millions and millions of unfilled jobs and a workforce millions and millions short of where we would have expected on the pre-pandemic trajectories. And also a sort of a new a new face to the worklessness phenomenon, with new groups seeming to join the prime age men. So, that's grim. I'm curious about the it just
3: relative to that phenomenon that you just described of you know it it's actually getting worse. You know, for a long time we talked about about a big part of this challenge being. Uh, that we didn't have the right kinds of jobs for men who are out of work. We we saw a decline in manufacturing employment. We produce more stuff than ever, but we we don't need as we haven't needed as many people to do that work. And fields like construction and even in manufacturing right now we we've got you know a couple million open jobs in the in these fields and there's no doesn't seem to be any magnet magnetism in those in terms of pulling people back in pulling men back in
2: what do you make of that well when i wrote the first edition the prevailing wisdom in academic and policy circles i think is that the problem of Declining workforce participation for guys, and I mean by guys, I mean the 25 to 54, the so-called you know, men of prime working age. The declining trends in labor force participation were basically a reflection of economic and structural change, the declining demand for less skilled work, decline of manufacturing, as you mentioned. China enters the WTO, disruptive technologies, outsourcing globalization, all that. And and certainly that's, I mean, there's truth to that. That's part of it. But my argument then was um, it's not the whole story. And in the case of the U.S., distinct from other advanced uh, affluent democracies, it's probably not even most of the story. Hmm. One of the things that I pointed to back then was the really spookily regular increase in labor force dropout rates, not in labor, nilf rates. If you you took a look at the trends from 65 to 2016, which is more than half a century, it's almost a straight line. I mean, it was, let's call it a social science straight line. I mean, it was R-squared of 0.96 or something like that. You couldn't tell where the recessions were. You couldn't tell where China had entered the WTO. I mean, There was no evidence from, from, the, uh, from the trajectory of the flight from work of what sorts of economic or structural forces had had any influence on this thing. So in the latest edition, in this post-pandemic edition, of course I went back and, you know, did my nerd stuff and, you know, did the regression lines. And I cannot explain this to you, but it is almost exactly the same line. Mm. I mean, you start at the same place, you end up where we are now, and those additional six years are just on the trend line that I charted out in mm-hmm. twenty sixteen. Uh, I do not have an explanation for it, but it's kind of spooky to see this because it makes it look more like, you know, like some sort of geological phenomenon than, you know, than a social science phenomenon. But it's it's the same slope. It's the same intercept. It's about the same, you know, R squared or percentage of, you know, uh, coefficient of determination. So whatever whatever was happening is, you know, is still happening. And back in 2016, There was this line of reasoned inquiry uh, about my book, which went more or less like Eberstadt. There's no work to be had out there. Don't you get it? Mm. Uh, That's kind of harder to say now when we have 11 million unfilled jobs.
0: Next, we'll hear from Ryan Streeter, the State Farm James Q. Wilson Scholar and Director of Domestic Policy Studies at AEI. This clip is from a February 2022 episode with Streeter and Dan Cox, Director of AEI's Survey Center on American Life. Here, Streeter discusses some of the findings from the Center regarding happiness and loneliness. As you'll hear, the Survey Center's findings underscore the role of civic engagement, which includes the formal volunteering and informal neighborliness and desire to help others in happiness. As Streeter explains, if you want to be happy, it's great to be social, but it's even better to be civic.
4: One of the things that uh, I found really interesting in some of the work that we've done is given the Public attention to questions of loneliness and anxiety and these sorts of things that we're experiencing is, is this that when if you want to promote happiness in your life and if you want to avoid loneliness, it's great to be social and sociable as a person, um, but it's even better to be civic um, and. And, and by that, I mean, when we find we find ways of grouping people together and when we ask them a number of questions about how frequently they speak to their friends and how often they spend time with people, and we also ask them a battery of questions by which you can measure people's social isolation, and you can kind of mix all that together. And, and in one of our analyses, we, we, we created sort of four categories of people, those who were highly civic. That is, they volunteer a lot. They actually report going and participating in voluntary associations or congregation or what have you, um, and they also spend a lot of time with their friends. Um, and then we look at those who aren't either of those things or those and there are people who are highly civic but not very social. Um, they, they participate a lot in voluntary life, but they don't really hang out with their friends very much. And then a lot of people hang out with friends but don't really volunteer right. So you can kind of look at all of those things together. And it is interesting to to see and, and again, some of this confirms what people might considered to just be common sense and conventional wisdom, but it's interesting to see this in the data that when, as you would expect, people who are not very social and people who are not very civic are the most lonely. Um, and there are also people that are more the most likely to say that they're not feeling that happy today um, when you ask them questions about their subjective well-being. And then when you see people who are social but not civic or people who are civic but not social, they, they're roughly lonely or not, they're, they're, they're much less lonely than the other crowd but they're you know they're they're close um but when you look at the people who are social and civic that it's the the addition of civic to the social that kind of puts things you know on steroids or puts them puts them really high and so it's this these people who do spend a lot of time with others but they also are engaged in their community just kind of repeatedly show up as those people who are more likely to pitch in when asked to help they're more likely to give a high estimation of a place where they live they're they're uh, much more likely to say i'm not really very lonely ever um and and the like uh, one one kind of fun sub finding there um, when it comes to volunteerism, because we, you know, and thanks to Dan, we've been able to ask a really interesting set of questions to look at informal social capital. That is just the the, the experience of being with others, not planned necessarily, um, or or I shouldn't say not formal, where you're showing up at a set time to, to volunteer at a, at a soup kitchen or whatever, but just getting together with friends or spending time with others. But then we also look at formal volunteers. And we found out that among young adults, you know, people 18 to 35, Um, As you would expect, people that volunteer regularly uh, on, you know, in any one of the lists of like 11 voluntary kind of opportunities, whether it's a veterans group or sports club or a church or local charity, they're going to be less lonely than the national average. Um, with the exception of one, which is political volunteering. It's when people just volunteer only in politics, they tend to be be lonelier than the national average. And I'm not sure if that's because politics is just hollowing out our souls or it's attracting lonely people or what the, what the deal is there, but um, volunteerism politically isn't the same thing as volunteering in other ways.
0: Next, we'll hear from Vikram Mansharmani, an author and lecturer at Harvard University. In this clip, which originally aired in September of 2020, Manchuramani discusses the main theme of his terrific book, Think for Yourself Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. As you'll hear, Manchuramani contends that we are increasingly outsourcing our intelligence and decision making to experts. While this can bring benefits, it has significant downsides. More than ever, Manchuramani argues, we need to learn to think for ourselves and keep experts on tap rather than on top.
5: How did we get to where we are? Here, I would suggest that it's really the explosion of information, the deluge of data, and frankly, it's just scientific progress. We've learned more and more, and as we progress, we have more information. More information has resulted in more opportunities for us to choose, and traditional economic theory would suggest that more choices can only be good. And yet, somehow, we find, from a review of the psychology literature and other areas, that choice can both debilitate as well as empower. And so, what we find is that with all these choices out there, many of us are left with this low grade anxiety about choosing the optimal decision, of making the optimal choice. And that really has led us headlong into the arms of experts and technologies that promise us salvation from this fear of missing out on the optimal decision. And that is a problem. For many reasons, but that's really how we got here. I got, I think, scientific progress, an explosion in information and data, and all these choices that have sort of emerged from that development. You know, we want to optimize. We're uncomfortable satisficing, and that's resulted in this, this FOMO, really. So that's how we got to where we are, and that's really the beginning of the book. Then I turn into, why does this matter, right? So this matters because often we're giving up our thinking. We're literally losing our ability to think critically. You know, we're outsourcing our thinking to these experts, we're being managed, we're allowing them to choose what we find interesting or what we find important. And we're giving up the agenda, we're effectively losing our autonomy. And there are lots of ramifications, and we can dive into them. But then the sort of second half of the book, the remaining part of the book sort of gets into, well, what do we do about this? How do we reclaim control? How do we restore common sense? How do we think for ourselves? And some of the strategies I discussed there, and we can obviously dive deeper into any of them, include well, one of the things we need to do is acknowledge that experts are biased, limited, and incomplete in their perspectives. So we should triangulate through multiple perspectives and multiple experts. Further, we need to retain a mission orientation while experts can help us with tasks. Ultimately, you know, one of the chapters is, I think, titled Keep Experts on Tap, Not on Top. And I think that captures the essence of it, Brent, which is, really experts have a lot of value to bring. We don't want to dismiss them. And for too long, we've bounced like a ping pong ball between complete dismissal and complete deferral of experts. So either you completely dismiss them or completely defer to them. Both of those are wrong. I'm suggesting a nuanced middle ground, one where we keep experts on tap, not on top. We extract the value they offer without giving up control. So that's the essence of the book. There's there's a lot more there, but that's the quick Cliff Notes version,
3: so to say. So I want to pick up on this expertise question. It's a very important one. We're not just dependent, overly dependent upon experts. As you said, there's kind of a swinging back and forth on this, where we also have this phenomenon of what Tom Nichols and others have called the war on expertise, so I'm interested in getting your perspective. Where are we now on that in that pendulum swing? Are we too far over on expertise? Or do you see some signs that we are, in fact, rejecting expertise in some key areas? Yeah, I think you're right. A pendulum is probably a
5: better analogy than ping pong ball because it does swing. And we went from a complete devotion to technocracy and expertise, et cetera, that really characterized... I would argue, our political economic existence right up really through the 2015, maybe 14, 15 era. And then we saw a massive swing back against it. You saw it with Brexit. You saw it with populism rising around the world. You saw it with, we've had enough of the experts, we we need to reclaim control. And then we saw almost a dismissal of experts, which I think was equally problematic, frankly. It swung really rapidly. And what I'm sensing now, although I don't have scientific evidence to back this up, is that we're now seeing, hold on a second. It's equally bad to completely dismiss and bash experts. There is value there. We need to rely on what they offer us. We need to include them as inputs into our process. And you're seeing it for sure in some of the public health considerations today. You know, you don't want people dismissing experts completely. I would argue you also
3: probably don't want to completely defer to them, but we can get into that also. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that. I mean, I think it's directly relevant because we see on these public health questions that we're all grappling with, this is kind of a case study And what do you do with experts? You've got people like Anthony Fauci and others who are you know, advising us from the standpoint of expertise in virology and epidemiology and all of these other scientific fields telling us to go one way or don't go another way. Or, and then you've got kind of this war within the administration, I think, about what to do with all of this expert opinion. When you watch this going on, what do you see?
5: Yeah, look, it's a fascinating case study of exactly the topics I'm suggesting in this book. What I think is really important is to remember that experts live in their silos, right? And they have great expertise and value within those silos, but they almost structurally are unable to appreciate the context and what takes place in other silos. Anthony Fauci is a fabulous epidemiologist who has great insight. However, I have to ask a simple question, which is, is he factoring in the mental health of children being kept at home, away from their friends, not playing sports, and not learning? There's a real cost to that. Is he factoring in the cost of a missed mammogram? I don't know what it is, but I know it's not zero. Is he factoring in the fact that people are not getting their teeth cleaned at the dentist? Again, I can't tell you what the cost is, but I know it's not zero. And so there's a trade off. And of course, the economic impacts of a lockdown are dramatic. And that, you know, in a feedback loop can adversely affect mental health, adversely affect children's development over time when they see families struggling and opportunities lost. This is a really complex, interconnected dynamic. It would be foolish to rely on the expert opinion of only one person in that domain. This is a judgment call. This requires critical thinking and on the part of our leaders to factor in all of these disparate perspectives to form a mosaic. And I think a mosaic is probably a good analogy here, Brent, which is, you know, the leadership needs to be an artist. And that's probably right, because it's not science. It's an art. And the artist needs to take the tiles from each and every expert to paint that mosaic or to piece together that mosaic. You might want a long, smooth blue tile piece. You might want a sort of rough, white, jaggedy piece. Regardless, you're putting the mosaic together and you're using expert tiles to form that image. You know, I wish I had an answer for what to do, but I do think the complete dismissal or complete aggrandizement of any one particular perspective is probably ultimately wrong.
0: Finally, we'll hear from an episode released in September 2022 with Tyler Cowan, a renowned economist at George Mason University. Cowan discusses findings from his book, Talent, Co authored with Daniel Gross. Themes include what talent is, how to spot it, and pitfalls of biases in hiring, which cause hiring managers often to miss out on what Cowan calls invisible talents. He also offers some useful advice to managers on interviewing and identifying creativity and out of the box thinking in applicants.
6: Talent, as we cover it in the book, is people who have the potential to have creative ideas that will make a difference or somehow be transformative. It's not the only kind of talent, right? But it's the kind of talent we focus on.
3: And what are the common features of people with talent?
6: Uh, I think the word common features is pointing somewhat in the wrong direction. So talent is quite diverse. There's not a simple formula, but much like art or music appreciation, you can teach yourself to be better at it. You wouldn't quite say, like, what are the common features of all the really good paintings? Oh, they all have the color red or they're all, you know, square, but I think it's a more complex enterprise than that. And understanding the roles of intelligence and personality and how people engage in conversations is how you get to this deeper understanding.
3: I I was really intrigued by a line uh, in the book about, not about, well, I think you talked about it as lookism, that we tend to judge uh, kind of on outward appearances um uh, too much um what what's your um i'll just tell you what my bias is i'm always looking for something kind of unusual in the
6: person that i'm interviewing same here yeah talk about that a little bit if i'm speaking to someone who shows some potential but there's some combination of inarticulate or not what you would call traditionally good looking or attractive uh, that tends to pique my interest Mm. I would readily accept the claim that, on average, articulate people are, say, more successful or maybe have more talent, but those are exactly the kind of people who are already doing well or are already well-placed, and if they're talking to you looking for an opportunity, you should worry a bit about adverse selection. Like, maybe there's something wrong with them that can't be seen, and that's why they're talking with you. So, I feel really good about a hire or, you know, a, a scholarship or award grant when I know what's wrong with the person. So for me, negative information is very often a kind of positive. Mm. Yeah, of course, you'd prefer the person to be perfect, but you're never going to get that, and you want some account of why they're a good match for you.
3: So you also write um, that there's a significant subclass of potential workers uh, uh, that their talents are invisible, or at least significantly harder to spot. Um, how does that happen? Why, do you, why is that the case? Why, why are we not good at, at looking past the exterior into the talent?
6: Here is one example. Uh, on average, when men interview women, men tend to put too much weight on the personality characteristics of the woman and too little weight on the intelligence upside of the woman. Mm. That's the result in the research literature, but it's also broadly confirmed by my intuition and experience. Uh, There may be reasons rooted in biology why that's the case. Some of it is a kind of persistent social prejudice. But I think men are not always that good at understanding just how smart the very smartest women can be. So that's only one example. You ask, you know, the we, what are the mistakes we make? It depends who the we are. uh, But that would just be one illustration. When you're interviewing people across other cultures, it can be much harder to figure out how well you click with them, because it's different, right?
3: I, yeah, I certainly think that's true, and uh, it leads me to my next question, which is, I, I don't know how much of this is reflected in the intercultural or the, the bias question, but I do know, or my intuition, I should say, is you know, that interviewing is a very stressful activity. Uh, it is, there's usually something on the line on both sides, but especially on the part of the job seeker. Um, you know, they, they, they're, they're trying to get somewhere, they're trying to get something and it feels like the stakes are high. And so they come in, um, to an interview pretty stressed, um, uh, and stress, um, you know, slows us down cognitively. It just, it makes it harder to think clearly and, and respond, um, So I wanted to get your kind of response to that idea, and then your your thoughts on, for people who are are doing the interviewing, what do they need to do to, uh, if not put people at ease, at least allow them to relax enough so that you're getting a good picture of who they are?
6: We now return to Smith's TMS, because Smith stresses the idea of trust, and the best way to earn trust is to actually be trustworthy. So that's the number one thing you can do. I don't think you will fool people by pretending to be trustworthy when you're not. Uh, But to actually be trustworthy will relax people, but then to engage them conversationally, and I like to get them talking about whatever it is that they're excited about, could be anything. So the substance of the job, of course, you want to talk about, and then anything else where they can shine. And, you know, have a great command of detail, enthusiasm, talk about what they've done in some area. You want to sample how they process information, not how they prepare for a job interview. That's (laughs) one way to put it.
0: And that was Tyler Cowen on his book, Talent. That's all we have for you today. Thank you for being part of Hardly Working's journey to 100 episodes. We hope that these clips were helpful to you, whether you're hearing them for the first time or the hundredth time. And we hope to see you again next episode.
3: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.